And for our scripture this morning, let's turn to James chapter 1, verses 22 to 27. And notice that's on page uh, 897 in your pew Bible. That's 897 if you forgot your Bible this morning. And James 1, 22 to 27. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word, and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of a man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. If anyone among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and keep oneself unspotted from the world. May the Lord bless this reading of the Scripture for our hearts and our understanding even this morning. Let's bow our heads and hearts for prayer. So we're here at the end of of James chapter 1, and uh, this is very much a continuation of what I started last week when we looked at verses 19 to 21, where James exhorted us to be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. And he told us to put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with, wheat, with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. The Word of God saves souls. But the Word of God only saves your soul if you attend to the Word of God. There are many people who hear the Word of God proclaimed week in, week out, and they come away unchanged by it. And there's a word that describes those people, unsaved. If you hear the word of God and come away unchanged by it, then you are simply not a Christian. But if you hear the word of God and it takes root in your heart and bears fruit for God's glory, then it is you who are indeed a born-again follower of Jesus Christ. But we all struggle sometimes to put into practice that which we hear, don't we? We all find things that are hard in God's word to receive and hard to follow through on because it means putting to death the things that we want. But Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, but not, do not do what I say you should do? If Jesus is your Lord by definition, then you have to submit your life to him. Not just the fun parts, not just the easy parts. Like I said last week, nobody has to command me to, to eat ice cream. I like ice cream. 
But Jesus commands me to take up my cross daily and follow him. Jesus commands me to die to myself, to die to what I want in preference to what God commands and out of love for other people. And that's what God is calling us to this morning. That's what James is calling us to do this morning. So James is very much a continuation. James 22 to 27 is very much a continuation. I'll be focusing here this morning, though, on verses 22 to 25, and then we're going to get really practical in a couple of weeks. Next week we have Teen Challenge coming, but then the week following, I'm going to get really practical with verses 26 and 27. But what does James mean here when he says that we are not to be just a hearer, but also to be a doer? It's possible to read your Bible every day, but as one writer put it, to have done nothing except for to move the bookmark ahead. If you're not attending to what God's Word tells you to do and not acting on that, it is useless in your life. It's useless. So let me ask you then, why do you read your Bible? Why read your Bible? There's really only one legitimate reason to read God's Word. Do you read God's Word because you have to read God's Word? That's not it. That's legalism. By God's grace, it's been my practice to spend every morning for years reading God's Word. But I have to confess to you that there are times when I haven't really paid attention to what I've read. That there's times that it's almost as though I have to just read my Bible so I can tick a box that says that I've done my duty for the day. Is that true for anybody here? I trust that it's probably true for all of us at some point. But does that mean that just because we don't feel like it, that, that we, we can just say, well, no, I won't do that because my heart is not in it? Well, no, obviously not. We need to pray that God would change our hearts, that he would give us a desire to read his word and to attend to it. There's other times that, that I have read and have paid attention, but I haven't stopped to consider what God's word says to me, what that very passage is telling me to do. Because it's, it, there's, there's something there for all of us that God is going to speak to us out of his word. And he requires of us that we be changed by it in the power of his Holy Spirit. We may read God's word every day, but not let it impact our lives. We may sit under biblical preaching every week, but not let it impact our lives. There's some of you here who very likely are thinking about the person sitting next to you. Boy, I hope he or she is hearing this. But the question is, are you hearing this? Are you hearing this? The degree to which we're thinking about other people when we are hearing God's word is the degree to which we are not listening to what God's word has to say to us. 
So we need to strive to, to, in the power of the Holy Spirit, to hear God's word and to let it change our lives. Now, this is a struggle that I face. I have the privilege of being able to study God's word every week. I spend the vast majority of my week is spent in the study of God's word. And it is a huge privilege. And so much of what I'm preaching, I need to put into practice in my own life. So it's my prayer that the first person that's being impacted by what I have to say is me. Because if I'm not taking that attitude when I approach God's word and then I come to proclaim it to you, then there's a word that describes me and that's hypocrite. I need to be changed by God's word. You need to be changed by God's word. We all need to be changed by God's word. I need to practice what I preach. I need to be a doer and not just a hearer. Otherwise, I'm dishonoring you by proclaiming truths to you in what I preach. And I'm also dishonoring God by what I preach. Maybe this situation is familiar to, to some of you. A boy is lounging on his couch watching television. And his father tells him to go clean his room. And the boy says, yes, dad but then continues to sit there watching television. And his dad comes back an hour later, assuming that his son has gone and that his room is at least well underway to being clean. But when he sees his son still sitting there, he says to his son, didn't you hear what I said? And the boy says, yes, dad, I heard you. But did he really hear what his father said? said to him, was he really honoring his father by ignoring what his father told him to do? He could have listened very carefully to every single word that his dad said. He could have quoted it back to his father verbatim with every inflection exactly as his father had told him. But if he doesn't do it, he is dishonoring his father. Now, Jesus told a similar story in Matthew 21, verses 28 to 32, with the parable of the two sons. Jesus said, what do you think? A man had two sons. He went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. And the son answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And this son said, I will go, sir. But he did not go. Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. Now, David and I have been talking about this a little bit, but I have noticed that when I've talked to people about things in Scripture, and sought to apply various things in Scripture to individuals' lives and to issues that they were struggling with, I've noticed that some people will initially respond favorably to what I have to say. And they'll, they'll maybe even hang their head, and there might even be some tears that show that they feel sorry about whatever issue of, of, of sin it is that, that I'm talking to them about. But then you know what sometimes will happen with those people? 
they'll go away and they'll think about it and they'll get angry. And they will think of every excuse that they can not to heed the counsel that I have given, the biblical counsel that I have given. They'll point the finger at me and say, well, you're not perfect. Or you didn't say it to me in such and such a way. They will use whatever excuse that they can in order to reject what God's word says to them. And then there's other people who might initially get angry. They might hear it and they might clench their fists and they might even yell. But you know what happens with some of these people? Is that they will go away and they'll think about it and the Holy Spirit will get a hold of their heart and they'll repent. And they'll put into practice the things that they have heard. So it's not about how we initially respond to the Word of God. It's not about how we feel when we hear the Word of God. It's about what we do when we hear the Word of God. And that's what James is addressing here this morning. So what about you? Do you hear God's Word? That's good. But it's not good enough. Do you agree with God's word? That's even better. But it's still not good enough. It is those who do God's word who will be blessed. So James says in 22 to 24, But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. James is not saying here that hearing the word is of no value. It's those who are only hearers that he's concerned about. He's saying that the, hearing the word of God alone is of no value. The kind of hearing that does not result in changed behavior is worthless. Now, when I lived in Australia for, for probably about three years, I had a, a housemate who loved to learn. He would read his Bible regularly. He would listen to good preaching. He would read good books. But there was something wrong. Because the, the things that he was learning did not bear fruit in his life. His doctrine at that, at that point appeared rock solid. But there was no practical application of the things that he was learning. And it's amazing. I mean, this, the Lord used this guy in my life in many ways to, to help ground me theologically. He was the one that, that first introduced me to John MacArthur and John Piper. He and I would love to sit down and discuss and debate theology. Like I said, much of his theology was correct but there were no results. Now, we stayed in touch after I left Australia to go to seminary, but I was really grieved to, to, to hear that he was beginning to play with, with some heretical ideas. He became enamored with things like the new perspective on Paul, which, which, is, which is heresy. And he began to go down the whole emergent church route. And then he began to, to go wholesale into New Age thinking, and he completely rejected the faith. 
Now, we were in touch a couple of months ago, and it appears that he at least has rejected the New Age stuff, but he is still far, far, far from biblical Christianity. This scares me. This scares me. So, do you like to read about things of God? Good. Do you like to learn about the things of God? Good. Do you want to know more and more about God? Good. But is that changing the way you live your life? Please turn with me to our 1 Corinthians 8, chapter 1. This is a, a verse that's probably familiar to many of you. Perhaps many of you have quoted it, and I've quoted it myself. In fact, I, b- I believe I've quoted it with reference to my housemate from Australia. Paul says, Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us pos- possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but knowledge builds up. Now, have you, have you used that verse in reference to somebody who liked to learn things? but maybe didn't bear fruit. I've got to say that if you did, you quoted it out of context, and that's exactly what I did because that verse is not teaching. That verse is not teaching that knowledge is bad. He's saying this knowledge is bad. Now, the, the NIV, unfortunately, leaves out the definite article there. The, it's there in the Greek. The definite article is not any knowledge, it is this particular knowledge. And Paul explains what this knowledge is in verse 4. It's therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence. And then again in verse 7, however, not all possess this knowledge. This knowledge. He is talking about a particular kind of knowledge that puffs up. Now, the Corinthian church, if you're familiar with the book of Corinthians, the Corinthians were full of pride. They were even proud that they were open-minded and had somebody who was living in an incredibly immoral, sexually immoral lifestyle, and they were, they were proud of their open-mindedness that they didn't rebuke the person for this sin. This was a particularly proud church. And the knowledge that he's talking about here, these people were, were wantonly, um, because they knew that an idol was nothing, they were flaunting the freedom that they had. They were right in the sense that an idol is nothing. And they could freely eat food that was sacrificed to idols, but by their freedom and in, they were, in their pride, they were hurting their fellow Christians. So we need to be very careful when we look at the Word of God and and apply it in context and not just take out verses or parts of verses and and just because we have heard them quoted in a certain way, use them then in other people's lives. That's what I did. That's what I did, and we all can easily do this. This verse is not condemning knowledge. Otherwise, it would be at odds with many other passages of Scripture. The Bible never condemns knowledge. Quite the contrary. If you read the book of Proverbs, Proverbs uses the word knowledge over 40 times. And every single time it is used in a positive light. 
James is not saying that it's wrong to be a hearer of the word. He's saying it is wrong to be a hearer only, to be a hearer only. In Proverbs 1.7, we see the most important kind of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. You might have heard people say that it's nothing to know about God. You have to know God. But if you don't know about God, you don't know God. There are many people who focus on that, that relational aspect that they are so focused on, on having a, uh, what they would refer to as an intimate relationship with Jesus and an intimate encounter with Jesus. But they have a zeal, but not according to knowledge. Those are the words that, that Paul used when he condemned his countrymen for the way that they were worshiping God falsely. They weren't really worshiping God. So a real knowledge of God is grounded in a knowledge about God. And if you want to know about God, you need to be a hearer of the word. But if you are a true hearer of the word, you will also be a doer of the word. Paul said in Romans 10, 17, so faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. There is nobody who is going to be in heaven that has not heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. But there are many people who will not be in heaven who have heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. In Romans 10, Paul goes on to talk about those who have heard it but have rejected, his countrymen who have heard the gospel but rejected it. Many have heard the word of God. Many have heard the gospel and have never been changed by it. And this is an area where Christian parents especially need to be so careful. Christian parents, you need to raise your children in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. You need to be so careful to discipline your children, to teach them God's word. But you also need to be very careful that it doesn't just go to, to superficial outward behavior. That it needs to go to the heart because true change begins in the heart as, as children hear the word of God are changed as they are converted as they turn away from a life of sin and follow Jesus Christ. So children, you here today have heard the word of God from your parents. You will hear the word of God from this pulpit. You will hear the gospel again and again and again, you need to repent. You need to repent and turn to Jesus Christ. But the people that James are addressing, that James is addressing here, are people who are not bearing fruit for God's glory. That's what the book of James is really about. Remember, he's talking about true religion as opposed to false religion, true faith as opposed to false 
faith. So James is asking the question here, is your theology really your theology? Let me say it another way. Does your theology have an impact on the way that you live your life? There are people who profess to believe that God is sovereign over all things, and they're right. God is sovereign over all things. But by the way that they worry about problems in life or the way they try to control the behavior of others demonstrates that they don't really believe that God is sovereign. Some people say that they believe that they need to forgive. They might even be able to quote Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount and his command to forgive. And they say that that they have forgiven those who have wronged them. But their thoughts and their words and their actions prove that they haven't. If you spend time dwelling on somebody else's weaknesses, you have not forgiven them. If you talk repeatedly to others about the weaknesses of somebody else, you have not forgiven them. If you find somebody, if you find yourself behaving coldly towards someone or avoiding them, you have not forgiven them. With the parable of the unforgiving servant in Matthew 18, 21 to 35, Jesus warned that the servant who had been forgiven so much but refused to forgive his fellow servant who owed him a pittance, in comparison, would be handed over to the torturers. Handed over to the torturers. And Jesus said in verse 35, So also will my heavenly Father do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. It's not enough to say that you forgive somebody. You actually have to do it from your heart. But those who hear without doing are deceiving themselves, James says in 22. They're deceiving themselves. But what are they deceiving themselves about? They're deceiving themselves about the reality of their religion. Look at verses 26 and 27. James says if someone is religious, says he's religious, or thinks he's religious, but does not bridle his tongue, he deceives his heart. This person's religious religion is worthless. He says that religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit widows and orphans in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So true religion doesn't do some things, but does do other things. We'll talk a lot about that next week. It's only the religion that produces the deeds of righteousness that is pure and undefiled before the Father. So people who hear without doing might think that they're saved, but they're deceiving themselves. Now, of course, we all have blind spots in our lives. We all have have areas of sin that we're dealing with and some that we're not yet aware of that we will deal with by God's grace. But are you struggling? Are you fighting against sin in your life? Paul said in Romans 8, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the flesh, you will live. So, 
The question is, is whether your life is characterized by a particular sin. If you are struggling against sin, that's good. If you're fighting against it, that means that there's life. But if you are just going with it, then you're probably not even a Christian. The Apostle John was emphatic about this in, in, in 1 John 3, 8-10. to He says, Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Now, of course, as I said, we all fail. But is your life characterized by obedience? Are you growing in grace? Are you growing in grace? Ask the people who are closest to you. Ask your family members. Ask your co-workers. Ask people in this church, do you see me growing in grace? Do you see me looking more like Jesus Christ? Because in Romans 8.29, we read that those whom God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. So if you are truly saved, your life will look more and more like Jesus. You will become more and more and more of a doer. James used a similar argumentation in James 2.14. I'll be talking a lot about, about this in a few weeks. But he says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says that he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Can that faith save him? The faith that doesn't work cannot save you because true faith works. Paul said in Romans 2.13, It is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Those who hear God's word without doing it are not justified. They're not justified. They are still dead in their sins and transgressions. They are still guilty before God. Jesus taught this as well in Matthew 7.21-27. Particularly in, in verses 21-23, to 23, he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And I quoted earlier from Luke chapter 6, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you to do? It's the doers of the law who are righteous before God. He goes on in verse 25, but the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, not being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Can you imagine somebody so foolish that they would study their face in a mirror, and then as soon as they turn around, they forget what they look like? It's ridiculous. And that's how ridiculous it is when we hear God's word and do not put it into practice. Thomas Manton says that doers are the best hearers. Doers are the best hearers. 
So if you are listening carefully to what God tells you and care about God, if you love God and want to honor Him, you're going to do what He tells you. But what does James mean here when he refers to the, the perfect law, the law of liberty? The perfect law. He also refers to the law of liberty in 2.12 as well, where he says that we are to speak and to act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. So first of all, for the law to be perfect, what exactly does that mean? Well, in 1 Timothy 1.8, we read that we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. So to use the law lawfully is to use the law for that which it was intended to be used. The law was never meant to be used as an instrument of our salvation. To use the law to earn salvation is called legalism. We're talking about this on, on Wednesday night. But if you are in Christ, there is nothing that you can do to make God love you more than he loves you at this particular moment. That God loves you with the very same love that he has for the Son. You can't change that by your obedience. But if you know that that is true, if you really love God, you will do what he tells you to do. Because there's a ditch on the other side. The opposite of legalism is antinomianism. And it's, it's the, the belief that because we're saved by faith alone, we can then go and do whatever we want to do. That's heresy. And the people who believe that are not Christians. So how do we use the law lawfully? Spurgeon said, what is God's law now? The law is not above a Christian, it is under a Christian. Some men hold God's law like a rod in terrorum over Christians and say, if you sin, you'll be punished with it. It is not so. The law is under a Christian. It is for him to walk on, to be his guide, his rule, his pattern. For we are not under law, but under grace. He goes on, law is the road which guides us, not the rod which drives us, nor the spirit which actuates us. The law is good and excellent if it keeps its place. The reformers referred to what is known as the, the three uses of the law, the law as curb, the law as mirror, and the law as, as rule. First of all, the law as a curb. The law there promotes order, it restrains evil. In Galatians 3.19 we read, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. Many countries around the world have laws that reflect God's law to a certain degree. And the degree to which that we have, have peace and order in this country comes from the fact that this country was founded on Christian principles. And as we see this culture increase, increasingly reject God's law, we will find disorder and chaos and violence increasing. We've seen it happen just even in the last few years. But the second use of the law, and this is the one that, that I want to focus on for a few more minutes, is the law as a mirror, where the law shows us our sinfulness and our need for forgiveness that only comes through Jesus. 
It's James 1.24, I believe, that, that had the inspiration for this. When the, when the reformers developed this image, they had James 1.24 in mind. But we also read in Galatians 3.24, So then the law is our schoolmaster until Christ came in order that we may be justified by faith. But even though we're not under the law in the new covenant, the law still shows us our need for Jesus. The law still is a mirror that shows us our sinfulness and shows us that we cannot rely on ourselves or our own righteousness. If that was the case, we would not survive even for a second before a holy God. So as you measure your life by God's law, you know how much you still need to be justified by faith. But the third use of the law is the law as a rule. It helps us to know God's moral will. It's, it's God's law here that guides us. He sh it shows us what's wrong and shows us what's right. So we seek to obey God, though not out of a sense of duty, but out of a loving response to God. We love him, so we keep his commandments. John 14, 15. A wise man once said that the law is like a mirror in which we behold first our impotence, secondly our iniquity which proceeds from it, and lastly the consequences of both are obnoxiousness to the curse, just as the mirror represents to us the spots on our face. So when we hold up the word of God, when we look at a passage like the one that we're examining this morning, we come under it and we see, we're, ex we're exposed by it. Our sin is exposed by it. And if we're in Christ, we will seek ways by God's grace and for his glory to change our behavior so it increasingly lines up with what we see commanded there. James also said that the law is perfect. Four times in Psalm 119, David says that he delights in God's law. And Paul says the same thing in Romans 7.22. As Jeff Thomas says, James calls the law perfect because it perfectly expresses God's character and it perfectly addresses our needs. It is perfect because it is unchangeable and permanent. So just, just as God's character is perfect and never changes, God's moral will is also perfect and never changes. Right is still just as right as it was at creation and will be true for all eternity and likewise wrong is just as wrong as it was at creation and will also be wrong through all eternity. But the law here is the law of liberty. Now, James is the only one who uses this particular term. He's the only one that describes the law as the law of liberty. And it, by it, he's talking about the freedom that we as Christians have under the new covenant, without the constraints that were under on Israel in the old covenant. So issues like circumcision and the priestly sacrifices and the, the, the clean and unclean laws are they, there are principles that are enduring there, but we're not under those. They have fulfilled their purpose in pointing to Jesus Christ. They were pointing ahead to the new covenant. So those ceremonial aspects are not binding on the Christian. They have fulfilled their purpose. But if we are free, if it's the law of liberty, liberty does that mean that we are free to ignore God's commands. God forbid. It's actually freedom to obey the law. It's freedom. 
to obey the law. Some people might say, well, how is it freedom if the law is telling me that there's certain things that I shouldn't do? Well, let me ask you this. Does a fish feel that he is not free because he is constrained to swim in water? Does the fish feel, oh, I wish I had legs like a frog, then I could climb up out of this lake? Or does the fish feel, I wish I had wings like a duck so that I could fly up out of this lake? No, he doesn't. That fish is free to operate within the element that he was designed to operate in. Likewise, we as God's creatures were designed to operate within the realm that God has designed us to operate in. And he has designed us with certain constraints that are actually there to protect us and to guide us. So if you were to talk to, to a drunk street person and ask them if they are free, they may say to you, yes, I am free. They may feel free because they're, they're free from, from anybody telling them what to do. They're free from having to pay taxes or to hold down a job. They're free from from the, the need to, to stay away from alcohol. But are they really free? When I, saw, when I lived in Toronto, there's a lot of, of street people there, and, and the, the seminary that I went to there was, was in the middle of a, a, a really rough part of town, and there were homeless people everywhere. And, and, and for the vast majority, when you offered them help, I knew guys that worked in shelters and could get them in, and when, when you asked them, you know, here, I can help you to get into a shelter. Their eyes would just glaze over. They didn't want the help. They don't want to be in a shelter because to be in a shelter means that they have to abide by certain rules. They don't want the rules. They don't want the rules. And they are free. They are free. But they're free from righteousness. They're free from righteousness. That's what Paul says in Romans 6.20. When you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. So am I free to jump off a cliff? Technically, I am. But it really wouldn't go well for me if I did. I have to operate within the realm that I was designed to work within. So do you want to be somebody who, who looks into the law of God, the perfect law of liberty, and perseveres? Then you need to study God's word. You need to meditate on it. You need to preach it to yourself. David says in Psalm 119.11, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Other translations say, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. So brothers and sisters, are you hiding God's word in your heart? Don't trust your flesh. Don't trust your flesh, not even for a second. God's word, as we saw last week, is the sword of the spirit by which we put to death the flesh that rears itself up against God. But this here, this command is not just for those who are young in the faith. We all need to do this. 
We need to make it our practice to do it daily. To preach God's word to ourselves, to preach the gospel to ourselves. You can't just memorize a few verses and then, or even a whole lot of verses, and then just rest on what you've done previously. If you have a friend that goes away for two months and asks you to water his plants for him, and you're very diligent in the first two weeks to water those plants, but then neglect your friend's plants for the whole rest of the time that he's away, your friend's going to come back to dead plants. And when he asks you, what did you do with my plants? If you say to him, well, I was very careful in the first two weeks, it's not going to cut it. You have to persevere. You can't rest on something you've done in the past. It's got to be your daily practice. Your daily practice. Finally, look at the last phrase there of verse 26. He will be blessed in his doing. Blessed in his doing. In Luke 28, we read, Blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. In Psalm 1, verses 1 and 2, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. So is your delight in the law of the Lord? Do you meditate on it day and night? Then you will be blessed. Now, our primary motivation is, is not the blessing. Our primary motivation is love for God. But God is no man's debtor. God will bless us for our obedience. But likewise, feelings aren't the motivation for our obedience. Some of us tend to live out of our feelings. And I'm sorry, ladies, but this is one that... that you're probably more prone to than men to make decisions based on feelings. Now, believe me, I know men that do this too, but, but we need to fight against that. If you don't feel like doing something that God wants you to do, does that mean that you're free to not do it? No. You set your heart to say, I, by God's grace, am going to obey what God tells me to do no matter how I feel, no matter how I feel. And you know what will happen if you do that? The feelings will come. The feelings will come. You will find that as you set your mind to obey God and to do whatever it is that he commands you to do out of love for God and love for other people, you are going to find that God is going to change your heart and you'll begin to delight in those things. There's a, a, an issue that, as, as Jane and I uh, try to, to sort out our wedding date, I mean, I would marry her tomorrow if I could, but obviously there's a lot more work involved uh, for a woman for, for the wedding. I'm trying to help out where I can, but I would marry her tomorrow if I, if I can. And there's things that are happening that, that require for her, for her to be able to to feel comfortable in, in what's happening and things that she needs to do. There's a medical procedure that she has to get done. It, it is better to wait. And so it's looking now like it's probably not going to be until August. Now, I've got to say that 
I don't want to wait until August. But I know that God's word tells me that I have to prefer her. That I am called, if if we're to marry, I am called to give my life for her as Christ did for the church. So, So waiting for a few extra months to get married is nothing compared to that. And as I determined in my heart that I knew what God's word said, and out of love for God and love for Jane, I said, I'm, I'm going to do it. I'm just going to say, look, you know what, Jane, whenever you feel comfortable, that's when we'll do it. But you know what happened? When I did that, my heart changed. And I was able to say to her, it is my joy, it is my delight to be able to defer to you in these things. But it wasn't that way at the beginning. It really wasn't. It was hard. But as I determined to obey, as I determined to put into practice what God's word was telling me to do, my, de- my feelings changed. My feelings followed suit. Jay Adams explains that motivation must come from a basic underlying gratitude and a fundamental desire to please God. Not from some specific feeling preceding each individual act of obedience. Once begun, he says, new feelings, however, often arise and the blessing or the joy of obedience will be experienced, but you can never experience the blessing in the doing apart from the obedience from which it flows. When God's word is obeyed, it produces a joy in us which we do feel and we are blessed. Moreover, we know that God is pleased and that brings joy. In that way, the spirit brings blessing or happiness to us. So we find that the joy of obedience far outweighs the difficulties that we had that are keeping us from wanting to obey God. When you hear testimonies of our brothers and sisters who are being persecuted for their faith around the world, they say, don't pray that the persecution will end. They say, pray that we will bear up under it. Because they know a joy. They know a joy in the midst of their suffering that goes far beyond what we can know, but we can know it in measure to the degree with which we obey God. So Gushigan Church, what would the people that are closest to you say about you? Would they say that that person is being changed by God's word? Would they say that that person is growing in grace? Would they say that that person is more like Jesus today than than he or she was in the day that I first met them? I would encourage you to, to, to do that, to ask those people. Ask them. Be bold and, and, and say that. And if, if you hear and see people growing in ways, make sure you go and tell them. It's humility to identify evidences of grace in one another. Make sure that you tell them ways that you see them growing. Make sure that you go out of your way to say, I saw you bless that person. And God was glorified in that. And God will be also glorified as you do that and encourage one another from God's word.